Welcome to Scientific American Science Talk, posted on April 14th, 2016. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... A lot of these games are about information. It's about taking advantage of data and information that are there, which other people perhaps haven't spotted. That's Adam Kucharski. He's a mathematician and a science writer, and his new book is called The Perfect Bet, which is what your March Madness bracket was not. The book's subtitle explains that the book is about, quote, how science and math are taking the luck out of gambling, end quote. Kucharski is based in London, but was in New York recently, where we talked. Adam, what is the perfect bet? In simplest terms, I'd probably say that the perfect bet is a scientific bet. Uh, really looking throughout history at how people have t- taken on these games and really looked for loopholes and ways to beat the house. There's obviously been a lot of systems, a lot of magic formulas and superstitions going around, but really the most successful strategies seem to have a solid basing in science and really tackling those gambling questions as if it's a scientific question and using experiment and analysis accordingly. So the perfect bet is trying to take the gambling out of gambling. In a way, yes, exactly. It's it's trying to separate um, this element of luck from games which traditionally are entirely viewed as games of chance. So things like you know, roulette or card games, which are really seen as complete gambling and finding ways to bring an element of skill into that. And you talk in the book about the De Cristina case, which caught my eye because our editor-in-chief is Mariette De Cristina, who I don't think is any relation to the De Cristina who you talk about. But what's fascinating about the De Cristina case, first of all, why don't you talk about what the De Cristina case is? Sure. So this was back in, uh, I think it was 2011, a lot of this was coming up, and it was a real crackdown on um, the poker industry in, in the United States. There's been a huge ex- expansion in, in playing poker. Um, and in New York, there was one case brought against someone who had been running a poker room. Um, and this was, was seen as, as a form of gambling, and so the case went to court. But unlike many games where in the law they are specified as gambling, poker isn't. So it was really up for debate as to what element of, of gambling was involved. And in, um, under federal law, gambling is defined as something which is predominantly a game of chance. So you had this fascinating legal case, which essentially relied on determining whether poker is predominantly a game of chance or predominantly a game of skill. And you had economists and, and people with a lot of knowledge of these kind of games of randomness, games of chance, arguing over whether poker is indeed something that's predominantly by chance. And in the end, the judge ruled that there was enough element of skill in the game for it not to be defined as gambling. So it's the first time that a judge had ever ruled on whether poker was a game of chance or not. Um, Although there's a short story by Mark Twain written over, well, more than 100 years ago because he's been dead for at least 100 years, um, that is the exact same scenario. A guy running a poker game is brought in uh, for violating the law because it's a game of chance. uh, And he says, no, it's not a game of chance. It's a game of skill. And he demonstrates to the judge by, if I remember it right, the judge tries to play poker against card sharps and never wins. And so it's clearly a game of skill. Ah, it's fascinating. I think these these kind of situations have cropped up a lot. I mean, the judge in, in the ruling of that poker case mentioned this um, this fascinating case back in the 1920s where someone had stolen an aeroplane and um, they were con- convicted for Grand Theft Auto. But at the time, um, Grand Theft Auto didn't it defined vehicles as vehicles running on land. And obviously that didn't cover aircraft. And at the time, the ruling made the point of we shouldn't just assume something 
is the same just because at first value it kind of looks like that. And I think it's the same with poker, that just because it resembles other games that are games of chance, we shouldn't just automatically assume it's gambling. I think there's a lot of debate potentially to be had there about actually what constitutes a gamble and what is predominantly skill. So let's talk about the many ways that people have tried to make what appears to the layperson as gambling something that's not gambling. You have many examples in the book, computer programs, uh, obviously card counting in uh, blackjack, uh, lots of ways to take the chance out of games of chance. Exactly. I think card counting, as you mentioned, is one of the, the really good examples. So blackjack is this game which on the face of it is is random. You know, you've got cards being dealt by the dealer and your objective is to get to 21 and not going over and beating the dealer. And back in the 50s, some um, some soldiers actually um, out at the Aberdeen training ground were, were looking at these games and they realized that because the dealer has one card face up, if you account for what the dealer has when you're making your decisions, you can improve your chances of winning. Um, unfortunately for them, their perfect blackjack strategy still resulted in a loss over time. So it wasn't beating the house, it was just making the house have a very low edge. Um, but Edward Thorpe, uh, who, was, who was a mathematician, subsequently uh, found that if you take into account which cards have been dealt before, then actually that could give you an edge because, of course, card deals aren't random. You know, the cards that appear in a particular round depend on what's come before because the same card can't appear twice in succession. And with that system, he showed that that can be a very effective way of gambling. Basically, the more information you have, the better chance you have to put the odds closer to your favor. Exactly. And it's a lot of these games are about information. It's about taking advantage of data and information that are there, which other people perhaps haven't spotted as useful as uh, they could be. The, the card uh, counting situation, for example, I think in the book, the, the example you use is if the dealer's card is a six uh, versus a 10, that completely changes your strategy as the, uh, the other player. Exactly. And the dealer has to f- follow fixed rules in blackjack. They have to draw up to a certain point and continue. And so if the dealer has a six, they're more likely to have to draw more cards, which would send them over 21 and go bust. Whereas if the dealer potentially starts with quite a strong situation, you don't want to to take so many risks against them because there's a stronger chance they'll come out on top. So it's really about adjusting your strategy based on what the other person's doing and what information you're seeing. So the casinos figured out that some people were really good at this and they started institute to institute multi-deck blackjack games where there might be five or six decks in play at the same time. I mean, this is a famous scene in the movie Rain Man, right? Because uh, Dustin Hoffman, autistic character, is supposed to be really excellent at um, remembering all the cards. So even a six-deck shuffle does not perturb him. And, I mean, perhaps there are some people out there with that level of memory, but I think for the average person, that's incredibly difficult to card count. And, of course, the more decks there are, the the less useful that information you had about past things. But uh, an interesting footnote to this story was a lot of the gamblers realized that they could change their strategy. So if you're dealing with six decks, it makes it much harder to card count, but it also makes it much harder to shuffle those decks properly. And at the time, the casinos were doing these riffle shuffles where you separate it in two and then um, riffle them together. And they were only doing one riffle shuffle. And if you think, think of a deck of cards that's in perfect order, if you riffle shuffle it once... All you're going to do is offset the cards by either one or two slots. So actually, there's a huge amount of information still there. And these um, many of these uh, card counting uh, groups instead used hidden computers to record the order of the deck 
And then when this one riffle shuffle happened, well, each card that was coming out, they knew it could only be one of two options. So inadvertently, the casinos had given them even more of an advantage by changing the game that was uh, meant to stop them. Yeah, it didn't uh, come out. I mean, I remember when the papers came out maybe 25 years ago about how many shuffles you actually need to truly randomize a deck. Exactly, and it, I think it's about six shuffles yeah. for a riffle shuffle. Um, and actually, that's a, that's a really fascinating part of maths, all this, how much um, shuffling and how much kind of disorder do you need to introduce before something's not predictable. So these computers that the blackjack players were using to uh, track the deck, uh, they're, they're wearable, tiny uh, instruments. Talk about how these guys would smuggle them into the into the casinos and try to use them. So in many cases, they would be wearable, uh, as you mentioned, hidden computers. And they were used for blackjack and used for games like roulette as well. And it'd be very much, um, in some cases, they were hidden shoes. So you'd be kind of tapping away at your toes to record uh, the information and have the, the computer kind of crunching out um, what was likely to come up. Um, and this required a huge amount of ingenuity. I mean, actually, the first ever wearable computer was designed for blackjack back in the 50s. So historically, you know, these kind of things are really important in terms of technical development. Um, then likewise, a lot of the early efforts, you know, they were amateurs doing this and a lot of the technical problems of the electric. I think a couple of times the gamblers got electric shocks when these things didn't quite work. Uh, but I think just as a, a, a sort of testament to the amount of innovation and just intellectual curiosity behind these things, you know, these guys were building computers and doing things that had never been attempted just for the sake of beating a game. They weren't making a huge amount of money at it, but it was just the challenge of beating these kind of puzzles. Right. And these people tended not to be, in fact, I don't think any of them that you mentioned were professional gamblers. First, they were scientists first who thought of the casino as an excellent laboratory. Exactly. And throughout history, one of the, the really interesting stories in the book was um, Carl Pearson. So he's a, a very prominent statistician. Um, and really a lot of the concepts we use about sort of testing hypotheses come from his work. And a lot of his early studies used uh, casino games as his laboratory. I mean, he saw Monte Carlo as just a source of random data to develop his statistical methods on. Um, and a lot of these tests, actually, the, his first sort of the concept of a p-value. So this, what's the probability of observing an event as extreme as the one you've actually observed? And it's a good way of seeing whether something's actually plausible in reality or whether the data you're getting suggests that um, there's something non-random going on. And that was actually developed around a lot of these uh, these games of supposed chance in casinos. And we often hear of uh, some study that used the Monte Carlo method. Exactly. And the Monte Carlo method, another example um, coming from card games. So this was during um, the Manhattan Project. It was Los Alamos. Um, there was a mathematician called uh, Stanislav Ulam who... Uh, essentially didn't like the kind of long analytical equation solving that's involved in a lot of maths. And he he realized during one card game, it was easier just to lay out the cards and see what happens. You know, if you've got this random process, rather than trying to calculate all the probabilities and do all the equations, just lay out some some cards and see what happens. And that computational technique he developed um, has subsequently made it you know, into computer graphics, into um, all sorts of simulations and forecasting. It's this technique of rather than trying to solve the mathematics just generates some random simulations and see what happens. And that's actually a very powerful tool in modern technology. And we see this a lot now in, for example, sports analytics. You don't theorize about what's going on. You just collect huge data sets and let the data tell you what's actually going on. 
Exactly. And there's a lot more data, obviously. I think the US sports in particular has always been very good at having a lot of data and statistics. I think um, in the UK in particular, so with kind of soccer predictions, that really lagged behind just because the data wasn't there. I think in the US, people were almost a bit spoilt with the amount of statistics they had. Um, but then, of course, it becomes very important in how you interpret that data. So you have these syndicates who have, for instance, horse racing, huge amounts of data on races. But how do you actually interpret that and convert that into something which predicts a winner? And it's much, the, the problems become much more difficult when it's not just two participants. I mean, in poker, it, it's much easier if you just have two players against each other to figure out the odds. If you have a horse race and it's one horse versus another horse, but once there are eight horses or five players at the table, things get really complex. Exactly. It becomes um, a lot messier from a statistical point of view. In poker, as you mentioned, so heads up poker, which is two player games, there's been a lot of attention on because it's it's fairly neat from a mathematical point of view. You know, you've got what you're doing, what the other person's doing. You don't have to worry about the other situations. And talking to a lot of these teams who work on a lot of the theory of poker, so these these strategic techniques, um, they point out that situations where you've got two people, you know, if one guy wins, the other person loses. But as soon as you have more people, you can get um, sort of coalitions and people inadvertently ganging up on a particular person. And you you quote early in the book, I think it's Nick the Greek, the famous gambler, and somebody I forget who asked him, you know, how do you how do you win so consistently? And it's because he wasn't. He said, "I'm not playing against the house. I'm playing the other players at the table, and I know who these people are, and I know how they behave." I think so for him, it was like a psychology experiment. Completely. And that, that was actually um, Dick Feynman was the, uh, right. so the physicist who, uh, yeah, I think he, he liked Vegas for the, you know, for the girls and the food, but didn't, didn't uh, like the, the gambling so much. But he was, yeah, just couldn't understand how you had a guy who made his money as a professional gambler. And as you, as you mentioned, Nick the Greek really understood the odds so well that he could actually take people on inside bets. You know, people who had these superstitions and were, were trying to place these kind of big money on things which weren't optimal. I think that's really the case in a lot of gambling subsequently, people who've done well, um, and just in a lot of other areas of life, people who understand situations and understand the odds a lot better generally um, can perform, you know, in much better in those kind of situations. You know, you mentioned before uh, the historical aspect and the, the very beginning of your book talks about the fact that um, nowadays we think of probability theory as ways to analyze these games but historically probability theory came from gambling because gambling's been around for thousands of years probability theory has not been so when mathematics started to become really sophisticated in well the middle ages and then into the uh the renaissance and the enlightenment um you really had some people like pascal uh starting to analyze what was going on in gambling and that's where we get our modern probability theory and i found this really surprising actually with searching the book because i think there's a lot of quite well-known examples of people using math and science to to beat the house you know with card counting this sort of thing but really the relationships worked both ways it's not just gamblers using science in many cases science has benefited enormously from people studying the house and back in the renaissance actually probability theory was developed to study these games. I mean, can you imagine having bets where it's not actually clear what a fair game is? You know, dice come up with, with two sixes, that's just good luck. There's no way of measuring the possible outcomes and what could happen. And a lot of this theory from probability to statistics, and actually more recently things like uh, game theory and chaos theory originated with studying games of chance. So I think science actually has benefited a lot 
from people's curiosity about gambling. Yeah, you you have a specific example. I think it was Pascal. And the, the question was, is it more likely for me to roll a six with one die in four chances or to roll two sixes with two die two dies in two dice <laughs> in 24 chances which if you just look at the arithmetic of it it looks like the same bet but it's not exactly from a probabilistic point of view exactly and that's that had been around a while, the, those kind of bets and those kind of questions. And that was, um, so it's Fermat and, and Pascal who developed a lot of this theory. And one of the crucial things was this concept of an expected value. You know, if you play a game repeatedly, what do you expect to win on average? And until you have that kind of theory in place, it's very hard to actually compare two bets directly and work out which one is more preferable. Right. So you're really in the dark until you, you have all the data necessary to know what the true expected value is. Exactly, yeah. And until you can do those calculations, and if you can imagine from these kind of Renaissance gamblers' point of view, as soon as you have those kind of methods, you've just got a huge advantage over anyone else you're betting against. Absolutely. In fact, now that we're talking about expected value, let's talk about some of the lottery cases that you discuss in the book. Because for certain lotteries, um, there is an expected value for your ticket that suddenly makes it actually reasonable to play the lottery. Uh, we actually had this just recently in that, I forget what the Powerball was worth, a billion, 1.4 or $1.5 billion. And once it got to a certain level, your $2 ticket actually had an inherent value over $2, by, not by much, $2.02 maybe. It was still a sucker's bet. But from a computer mind point of view now it's reasonable to at least buy one ticket because you're you have potential value greater than i mean obviously the big potential value is 1.5 billion but your actual value of that ticket before the numbers are drawn is more than two dollars and you talk about these particular lotteries they they tend to be fairly low in value compared to the powerball they're only a couple of million but because of a quirk in the rules some people figured out that there comes a time when it's really a uh, almost a sure thing to bet in a certain way. Exactly. And that's expected value when you have lotteries that tip into this um, situation where on average the ticket's worth more um, than, than actually the amount you're paying to buy it. Um, but really, it's not just the expected value you have to consider. So for a lot of these teams, that's the calculation that motivates them to carry it out. But it's the logistics of buying up the ticket. So a, a good example was, um, so it's over 20 years ago now, in the Irish lottery, they worked out that it would cost about a million pounds to buy up all the tickets. So by definition, you'd have the winning ticket if you bought everything, um, which was feasible if you had enough people, and enough bankroll to carry that out and actually just buy up all the options um, even though the lottery tried to stop them, they actually managed to get most of it in the end and net the jackpot. But I think things like the Powerball, um, that issue of bankroll and almost money management becomes more important because although the expected value might be um, positive, so you might, you know, on average, if you play the game lots of times, um, expect to make money, the chance of you going bankrupt, you know, if you have to buy millions and millions of tickets to make the win, for most people, that's not a reasonable option. I think... Uh, historically, that's been quite an interesting debate from a kind of mathematical point of view, because the mathematicians would value stuff on expected value, whereas 
for instance, an economist um, might look more at utility. So this concept of how much is something worth to you? Um, and a good example is the insurance industry. You know, if you buy insurance on something, on average, you're losing money. But I think most people would rather kind of have a predictable loss than suddenly take a big hit. And it's the same with the lottery that, um, you know, really that very small chance of a big win for most people isn't the worth, worth the almost certain chance of losing the price of their ticket. Right. But these consortiums have been put together in various lotteries at various places around the world where a large number of people all get together and, and figure out a system for buying up all the tickets. They do. And a really good example was um, a few years ago in the Massachusetts State Lottery. So this actually started with a college project. Someone was just comparing lotteries and seeing which would be prof- profitable and actually noticed that one of them would be profitable. And, and there was this loophole where if you bought enough tickets in certain weeks, um, you could almost certainly guarantee um, that you're going to come away with money. I think what they called the statistical sweet spot was about 300,000 tickets. So, And the key is that the value of the win is worth more than the price of all the tickets. Exactly, yes. Yeah. So you've got the value of the win. And of course, for lotteries, often you you scoop lower tier prizes. So it's not just the jackpot, you get the, the lower levels as well. So that makes the maths a bit more difficult. But really, they worked out that this um, this loophole was there and engineered you know, all these ticket purchases um, and in one great case, actually, the, the, this profitable situation was meant to happen when the jackpot reached 2 million, because that's when the lottery would redistribute the prizes. Um, and in one week, they actually worked out how to nudge the prize to activate a couple of weeks early. So everyone else was expecting this roll down to happen, I think, at the end of the month. And the syndicate bought about 700,000 tickets and nudged. So not just exploiting a loophole, but actually nudging the system into something that would profit them and no one else. That's a fantastic example, I think, of just ingenuity. It's a fairly common story with these consortiums that something goes wrong and they're not able to buy up 100% of the tickets. They might get 80% of the tickets. And so when the drawing comes, they're on tenderhooks because they have invested hundreds of thousands of dollars. And although the odds are now hugely in their favor, they still have a one in five, one in four chance of losing. And that's that's a concern. I mean, obviously, if you've invested that much money in the the example of the Irish um, lottery a few years ago, I think they had about 80% of the tickets. And that does give you a huge amount of nerves when the lottery comes. And one of the things I found remarkable talking to people who run a lot of these very successful syndicates is they almost don't really celebrate their wins. Because if you think if there's that much uncertainty when the event comes, you're still gambling, really. There's still a lot of luck involved. Uh, so if you've got something which is a solid system, you shouldn't really be celebra- celebrating or commiserating too much because you should have some control over what's happening. So I think in those cases where you have people who are nervously awaiting the draw, that suggests that you know, they didn't quite get there in terms of perfecting their system. You talk in the book about the fact that poker is really hard to, uh, to play with a computer. Uh, there are challenges in poker that are different from other games that computers do really well in. What are those challenges and and where are the poker bots and will they be taking over eventually all the online gaming sites? Poker, I think, is a really good example um, to look at when you're investigating artificial intelligence. So historically, you've seen games like Checkers a few years ago, which was um, the optimal strategy was found. Obviously, chess, there's a lot of focus um, with Deep Blue and, and these kind of chess computers. And now Go. And with, now with Go, exactly. Um, but one of the reasons that poker is very different is it's, what, it's what's known as an incomplete information game. If you think of something like chess, everything you see is in front of you. you know, every, all the information you need. 
which means that from a computational point of view, there's not really any element of chance or, or unknown information. Um, so in theory, if someone came up with a perfect strategy, they could just implement that and they'd get the same result every time. But poker's in many ways a more realistic game because in reality, in many situations, we do have hidden information. We don't know what the other person's thinking, what um, actions that they could take. And that's why I think from a computer point of view, it's, it's a more challenging, more interesting problem potentially because you have to deal with this risk. You have to make decisions anticipating what the other person's doing. You can't just rely on probability you have to, to some extent, account for what they're doing. You know, why are they placing low bets? Why are they placing high bets? How can I adapt my strategy to work out what the other person's up to? And is the future of, on, I mean, online gambling is hugely popular, but is the future of it just going to be people having their bots gamble or are actually, are actually human beings going to be playing these games? Well, they, certainly human beings will be playing, but will they ever win? That's a really good question. It's It's been in, incredibly fast, actually, how these bots have improved over recent years. I mean, even since I started writing the book, these bots, which I think some of the teams were a bit cagey about how good they were, are now, you know, clearing up at these games. So even when you've got multiple players and you know, very high stakes, um, are arguably better than, than most humans. And one of the things that was really interesting is actually a lot of the teams and researchers behind these bots by their own admission, aren't very good poker players. I think that's a really interesting element of artificial intelligence, that these bots aren't good because you've got a human to tell them how to play. You've essentially created something which can learn on itself. And um, if you even go back to Alan Turing's kind of famous imitation game of can somebody or can a computer convince someone that it's a human? Um, in some ways, these bots, I think, are, are edging away at those, those kind of issues because you've got these bots which can play so much better than their creators. And if you read interviews about a lot of these people who've played the bots, they talk about them like humans because the bots trick them, they deceive them, they're aggressive. And these are just computers that have learnt by playing against themselves billions of times. There's no human element in there. Um, and yet they've worked out to bluff. They've worked out how to deceive people. I think it's it's really kind of fascinating insight into the learning process. And in some cases, things like bluffing that we think are very human traits mm -hmm. actually are just a mathematically optimal thing to do. Yeah, that's really interesting. We, well, we all think of our computers as human, no matter how sophisticated the computer is, because we yell at our computers. We smack them on the side of the head and say, what are you doing? Why did you do that? Um, you, um, why did you write the book? Really throughout... Uh, my career. So um, I, I trained as a mathematician. I, I mean, I'm now working kind of applying maths to public health. Um, but there's there's always been an interest in these these games and gambling. Um, I think anyone with a kind of mathematical mindset is is always interested in looking for how games can be beaten and understanding uh, risk. And it was really, I mean, I think during my PhD, when a lot of these funds, which so you got recruiters kind of emailing you from banks and from all these other kind of familiar candidates, but it was people who had the betting equivalent of hedge funds, you know, people who were making money predicting sports. And I was, I, it was something that I was so unaware of was a viable industry and seeing how that had grown. And actually, the more I started digging into the history, realizing that you know, mathematicians from Galileo to, to Turing had been interested in gambling. And they weren't professional gamblers and that wasn't their career choice. But for them, it was this a way to play around with ideas. And I think that really explained to me why I'd had this fascination with these these kind of problems because all the people I've talked to researching the book, although many of them don't actually work as professional gamblers, 
they've got that that scientific mindset and they've got that curiosity about games. And I think that was just a fascinating thing to explore. Um, and many of the stories in the book, I think, kind of illustrate how close science and gambling have been historically. And actually, today, there's many of the interesting uh, developments as well, which are coming out of this relationship between the two industries. Yeah, you have a quote in the book, I forget who it's by, but it says, you know, something like, uh, once you uh, have enough information uh, your gambling site is no longer gambling. You're the manager of a hedge fund. Exactly. So I think that was a um, uh, that was a quote. I think from one of the columnists. It was it was uh, about these funds that have they're essentially hedge funds that are um, offering sports betting as an asset class. I mean, they're they're very much calling it an alternative asset class. And their argument is, you know, if you've got a guy who knows a lot about commodities and can outplay the markets. How is that different to a guy who knows a huge amount about sports and can outplay a betting market? Whereas arguably in betting, you know, you've got a lot of people who have very little expertise playing. And if you've got a, an edge, you can make money. And I think it's, it's much smaller in terms of scale. Um, and, you know, not all of these funds, some have been quite successful. Some have had uh, more limited success. But I think it's an interesting debate to have over actually what constitutes investment. And, you know, where are we comfortable putting our money in these kind of uh, activities that involve risk. Yeah, I don't know if you've been following here in the States, there have been uh, legal cases about some betting sites uh, about whether they should be uh, legal or not because the uh, the proprietors say it's a game of skill and the state, New York State, for example, is going after, I think, DraftKings and I forget what the other site is called, but saying, no, this is gambling and... and uh, you do statistics came out that uh, a, a tiny percentage of the players are winning most of the money because they're not necessarily the guy who knows the most about sports. They're mathematicians and physicists. They have PhDs and they've created algorithms that track all the data, especially in a sport like baseball, where it's a lot of discrete events. So the statistics become very meaningful for trying to predict the future. And uh, these guys are winning almost all the money. And so it's, you know, th this is a perfect example. It's not gambling for them. It's for a lot of them now, it's a full-time job. And I think the, the emergence of fantasy sports, so some of these websites you mentioned, is a really interesting development in the US because the argument, of course, is it's skill because you're predicting which players or which teams are going to do well and, you, and you're essentially placing money on that prediction being correct. But of course, sports betting, where you make a prediction about which teams are going to go well and place money on that, is still defined as betting in a lot of places. And I think it's really showing that uh, almost the, the divide between skill and luck isn't very neat. You know, we can't separate things into this is gambling and this is not gambling. And a lot of these games where, as you said, if you've got sharp bettors making most of the money by using their advantage in terms of how they can analyze the data... Um, and certainly that, that happens in finance all the time, happens in investments all the time. I mean, if you're calling fantasy betting a game of skill, or fantasy sports rather a game of skill, um, then that, I think, will have implications for how we view other aspects of, of sports betting as well. So you're now getting a master's in public health. Are you going to be doing massive database uh, assemblages and crunching and tracking epidemic 
pathways, things like that? Uh, so at the moment, actually, I'm working. So I've got a PhD already in that. Oh, um, oh yes. sorry. I thought that's, I was going to say you're working on it. That's fine. Yeah. So I mean, I actually work in epidemic forecasting. So we, we did exactly. a lot of work um, during the Ebola outbreak, um, uh-huh. more recently on some of the, the Zika outbreaks as well. Um, I think that's, although it seems like a very different industry, a lot of the methods, we use Monte Carlo simulations all the time. We dealing with hidden information. I think one of the, the classic questions we have to ask almost every day is, is this a pattern or is this something that's chance? And that's fundamentally the question which gamblers and scientists have been asking for centuries. And that's why I think a lot of these questions about risk are really interesting, not because I want to become a professional gambler, but in life, I think in a lot of these situations where you need to manage risk, you need to understand what you're looking at and you need to be able to identify whether you're looking at something which is a potential pattern and a problem. We talked about expected value in gambling. In epidemics, you have the expected number of uh, infections that you're going to create from one already infected person. So it's very, very similar. In, in many ways, yeah. And you also have the, the issue of these unlikely events. The, the most likely outcome perhaps might be quite minor. So, you know, with a particular bet, you might have the situation where on average you might make a bit, but there's a very s- small chance of something extreme happening. Um, in the case of an epidemic, it's, a, again, a different situation, but the, the same analogy, whereas in the, in the majority of cases, it might not be a problem, but it's that extreme event you want to know about and you want to be able to measure properly. And that's where a lot of these techniques around probability and statistics become very important. And for public health, you really want to be able to game the system. I mean, I think it's a situation where, you know, there obviously is a lot of risk involved and, you, you know, you want to make sure that you, uh, yeah, you make the right decision. The prescient Mark Twain short story I mentioned is called Science Versus Luck. He wrote it in 1870, but it might as well have been last week. Speaking of luck, it's tax time. Don't bet on not being audited. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can check out the article, How Does a Mathematician's Brain Differ from That of a Mere Mortal? It's not that it has more folds, although that is how I play poker. And follow us on Twitter where you get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. <laughs> <laughs>